0: Oh jeez. I know what you're thinking. You're like, he's doing it? He's really doing it? You know, I was thinking, Monday's coming up, that's when he posts his podcasts, Tuesday's the election, maybe he won't though, maybe he'll leave it alone, maybe he won't get into it. Well, you thought wrong, dear listener, because yes, you saw the headline correctly, today is the day, today is the election episode. I'm horrified. I I like to talk politics sometimes in the safety of my home. This is, is stressful, but we're doing it. Today we're going to be talking about the 2020 presidential election. We're going to be talking about the candidates. We're going to be talking about the concepts behind the election, some of the themes people are going into this election with, things that I'm afraid for, things that I like how I feel about each candidate, how I feel about some of the more hot-button issues that are being discussed this election. I said it once, I'll say it again, I am scared, folks. You're going to hear some stuff you like today, you're going to hear some stuff you don't like today. That's just the nature of the beast when it comes to politics. I'm going to try to present the most unbiased information I can. I'm going to try to be good for y'all. You know I do that as much as possible here on the Nightcap Podcast. Take it all with a grain of salt, you know. I'm not a political science guy, You know, I read the news, I got some subscriptions, I got some opinions, but that is all they are, so take it with a grain of salt. If you disagree with me, or if you agree with me, or if I made you think, or if I made you angry, whatever, please reach out and let me know. You can find me on Instagram at Jonathan Sherburn, you can find me on my website as well, at JonathanSherburn.com, where I'll be, I'm a little behind, but I'll be posting show notes, some opinions, um, this is my second episode of the weekend, doing a lot of recording, so... Trying to get this out. It will be out, though, Monday, the 2nd of November, before the election. I'll say, now, I already voted, so I can say what I want. I already voted. It's over. I'm not telling you who I voted for, but I voted. And you should vote, too. And you probably shouldn't tell anyone who you voted for, because you're going to make enemies, because we're all out here making enemies this election season. Oh, geez, my heart rate's going. I'm already all stressed out, and I haven't even started yet. Without further ado, folks, welcome to the Nightcap podcast. I'm John Sherburn, and let's fucking do this. For hundreds of years, yes, it has been hundreds of years. We have been electing officials to represent our national needs and interests. They there have been 58 elections, 45 presidents, and many Many years of politicking and social change that have led us to where we are currently today, for better or for worse. Today's episode, I'm going to be focusing on a few things in true nightcap fashion. It would be easy for me to soapbox, talk about my opinions, my emotions, who we should vote for, which guy's an asshole, which guy's the future of our nation, blah, 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 blah. But let's face it, that would be in nobody's best interest. I almost didn't do today's podcast because I was like, what am I going to say? It's not going to change any votes. No one's out here on the fence. Are you on the fence? Really? You might not know who you're voting for yet. Maybe you've been putting it off. But 99% of people know who they're voting for, know what they're doing, how they're doing it, when they got their polling place. They already mailed in. They're doing early voting. There's not a lot of fence sitters this year. There's just too much at stake. We've been stuck in our houses for like nine months. This is the world's best reality television series. It's like one of those, like, choose your own adventure. Your, your, your decisions will impact the future. Maybe. We're getting into that today. That's the point of the episode. I'm excited. I'm going to be talking to y'all about some of the things that make up our election process. I'm going to be talking to you guys about our, the potential victors of the election and what they got going for and against them. I'm going to talk about my fears. I'm going to talk about the current climate socio politically in this country. I'm fucking excited, folks. So let's, let's, let's talk for a minute. Okay, so every four years we all get together and we decide we're going to vote someone into office. And I know that you probably get all these intricacies. Some people do, some people don't. A lot of range in the country in terms of uh, political intelligence. Political awareness, that's probably a nicer word. We're all smart babies out here. We're, we're, we're intelligent little muffins. But political awareness is not equal for everyone, right? Everyone comes in with their own opinions, their own backgrounds. We got people come in from, oh, I'm from rural area. I'm from the suburbs. I'm from the urban areas. I'm, I'm in densely populated communities or sparsely populated communities. You have folks who are raised conservative, progressive. You can be radical. You can be moderate. There's people all over the place. And so everyone has their way own opinions. <laughs> and based on what you see and hear... You have different opinions. And I, it's funny to me, I grew up in a conservative area, right? I had relatively conservative parents growing up. I came to college, and I'm in one of the more liberal colleges in our country. And I've, I've graduated, but I'm still there, still kicking, had I at least stay until the election to see how much the city burns down. But it's interesting to me to see, like, the same exact... Situation be interpreted so differently, based on what you listen to and who you talk to. And there's these so many facts that aren't even facts, and figures that are manipulated and things that don't make sense. And so everyone always kind of comes to that consensus of like it's confusing, because you go talk to this person and then make you think that one side is correct, and you talk to somebody else, and you think the other side is correct, and then that must mean, I'm stupid or I don't get it or whatever. And I'm here to say that's not the case. The answer as to why that is a situation that's happening like all the time now is due to the fact that there's no objectivity. There is no right and wrong. And our two-party system that emphasizes, you know, two people, two mindsets, two ideas. The impact of having a two-party system has really created a place where there is a right and a wrong nowadays. And both sides are playing into it so hard. Think about our political representation currently, right? In our government right now. And how much of it is the Republican Party has no one's best interest at heart, but the Democratic Party has no one's best interest at heart. They're they're just working for themselves. They're just working to benefit the minority group that is in power. They're just working to benefit all of their interests and to stay authoritarian. You hear that from both sides, and the answer is both sides are correct. And if you look at, like, with as little bias as possible, if you try to look at everybody— The people in power are trying to maintain that power, and they're using their constituents' interests to keep themselves moving forward. And so that is the reason things are so confusing. And you can talk to people, and you're like, you should be wrong, but this sounds right, or you should be right, but the way you're doing this is wrong. And the reason is because there are so many shades of gray when it comes to social answers, because we are such a large and complex country. And so you might think, like, this is the answer, but someone else is going to say this is the answer, and both of you have credence to what you're saying. And so I'm just getting that out there now. And if you don't want to think in that mindset, do not listen to this podcast. If you don't want to think in that mindset of both sides are right and wrong, both sides have, you know, our interests at heart, but also not our interests at heart. If you can't do that, don't listen, because that is, I don't like to communicate with people that don't have that kind of mindset. And if you don't usually have that mindset, you're hardline To what you believe in. That's totally okay. But if for the next hour. You could do me the favor of just. Opening up and relaxing. And thinking about a couple different ideas and mentalities. That would be amazing. One more general thing before I get into some. Some nuts and bolts to start. This is kind of. uh, This is kind of an interesting concept. And not everyone's going to maybe agree with this. Or people might have some some trouble with it. But one thing I've always hear is like. Are America right? Like, what is America? What who who makes up America? What is the best for our country is different for everybody, and I've heard it from so many different sides of the aisle. Of uh, one of the best examples is that if you look at like the right. A lot of the times nowadays you're hearing a lot about socialism. And even on the left. So the left is a lot of like the far, far radicalized left or even the the not too far radicalized left is saying, you know, we need socialism in this country. And there's pros and cons to that. But socialism is part of the conversation on both sides of the aisle right now. And so I'll hear from like, if I hear from a conservative person say, you know, did you know that 40% of millennials want socialism in this country? And they almost say, it, like, that's, like, some sort of death of the nation or, like, it's going to destroy our country. And here's the thing, along with anything else, it might, right? It might be the right or wrong choice. We don't know if defunding the police is going to have a good or a bad impact. We don't know if, you know, putting billions of dollars into the environment, if it might sink our country, but save the world. No one really knows what's going to happen in the future, but we have to try things. And so I always find it funny when someone has, like, their view, like, this is wrong or right for our country, Right. If 40% of millennials want socialism, that means that socialism is an ideology that a good portion of our country wants. Not a majority, but a good portion of the country wants that, which means it's a mindset of an American. That's an American value for at least part of our country. And so I, I, I think about that as well when people talk about, you know, what is my America? What is my country? We're losing this or we're gaining this. They view it in such a small way. You know, just because you live in the city and you're used to being in the city doesn't mean that farmers out in the country don't exist or don't have needs that need to be met. And I think that's something we've lost. And this is the reason we have two parties. This is the reason we have things like the Electoral College. It's the reason we have all these different concepts is to try to best navigate the needs of such a wide group of people so that all of our money is not going towards one group or one idea or one concept. We have to balance. And we're losing our sense of balance. People don't want to balance. People don't want... You know, I think it's best if we do every four, eight years. I like having that switch. I, I don't want a, a progressive or a conservative in office all the time. It's almost like people want, oh, we want, you know, this to control this. All. The Senate should always be right or whatever. The House should always be left. Like people have those opinions, and I don't want that. I think it's good that we shake things up and see how different mindsets and ideologies impact things over time. I think it's necessary. That's my intro. Just some lamentations to get off my chest. That's probably the most personal I'm going to get for at least the next 20, 30 minutes. But I just wanted to kind of put some stuff out there. This is a very dense subject matter, so I'm going to try to go slow. I'm going to try to keep my bounds in check. I don't want to go too crazy or go too fast or try to talk about too many things. So if this has already been a little all over the place, I'm going to apologize now. But we are at like the 10, 11 minute mark, so I'm going to get into some some, some facts, some real I guess a bit of history. And the first thing I want to talk about is the Electoral College. This is a big concept right now, right? Do we get rid of the Electoral College? Is it is it better to have the popular vote be representational of who should be in office or should it be the Electoral College or what? And a lot of people are really confused and a lot of people are upset and they don't feel like their needs are getting met and their views are being met. And so I'm just going to talk for a bit about what the Electoral College is, how it actually works, and the benefits and negatives to different methods of our electorate and how we, how we do it. So, how the Electoral College actually works is that the people that are running for president pick beforehand an Electoral College. And this is made up of community members and activists and uh, people, titans of industry, whatever. They're made up of a group of people that supposedly reflect, well, the needs of the constituents of the United States, the needs of the people. And so those things are set in place beforehand. In each state, then, people vote, obviously. And this is where the popular vote matters. Nationally, it doesn't. But in terms of state to state, whichever candidate gets the most votes in your state gets the electoral votes for their state, most likely. That is called the, elect- the, the, the electoral college. There is a, a college of electors across the country, Every year, every four years, we go in and we vote and we say we want this person or that person and then the person that gets the most in New York, let's say New York goes blue, so then New York's electoral votes, however many there are, go towards... go uh, Electoral votes go towards the Democratic candidate. Now, at the same time, there is something called faithless electors. This is very rare, but those people break their duty to vote along the lines of their party. So... Again, we all vote. Each state gets their popular vote. They get the electors. The electors, 99% of the time, go with the party that voted them in. Sometimes they don't. And after all of that, you get all the electoral votes, and whichever person gets more wins the election. This is why swing states exist, because some states always go blue or always go red or mostly go blue or mostly go red. That doesn't change too often. There are some states, though, that every four years seem to be different places like Florida, places like Ohio, famously the purple states. And those are the states that everyone focuses on. Those are the states that people want because they're the states that matter. If you're not one of those states, it's a huge argument. Should you vote? Ideally, everybody in the country should vote. And that's, I think, the sentiment. Like everyone should be voting. It's good to vote because if everyone votes, then even just numbers wise, we can see what the people actually want. Regardless of who wins the election, we can see, okay, if 90% 90% of our population votes, we know what the country as a whole likes more. But we don't know that, because right now it's about two-thirds don't vote. And so it makes it very difficult, where it's almost like, it's, there's, it's like the statistical fallacies where if you call 100 people to ask their opinions, if 60 of them don't answer the phone or hang up the phone, it, it becomes a skewed statistic, because you don't know what those 60 people actually think. All you know is that they don't want to talk to you. It's the similar concept with voting, and so that's why people think voting is important. The counter-argument, I'm in New York. New York always goes blue. We got New York City. It's 8 million people there. You're going to get like at least 5 million blue votes f- no matter what every year out of that city alone. There's It never goes red. It's never contested. So sometimes conservatives don't want to vote here because it doesn't matter if they vote because even if I go red, even if my county goes red, the state goes blue. All or nothing. Sorry. A lot of Democrats don't vote either because they go, it's going blue. It doesn't matter what I do because it's going to go blue. Now, maybe sometime it won't, and that'll be crazy. I think it happened for Reagan, but it doesn't happen that often. And so that's, people feel like their personal vote doesn't matter. And aside from the every once in a while, there's a a faithless elector. I think there were seven in 2016. They all go the right same way. Interestingly as well, with faithless electors, there was actually a Supreme Court in, in 2020, I believe... The Supreme Court unanimously voted to allow states to require electors to vote with their party, which has been extremely contentious. So pretty much, if you're gone in the electorate, if the Democrats put you in their electoral college and you, the Democrats win in your state, as electoral college, you have to vote blue. Not every state does this, but the Court, Supreme Court passed that that can be the case. So check your state listings and laws just to know some states you have to vote along party lines. Other, other states, you can vote where you want. Faithless electors are allowed. This was, it's kind of interesting, because on the one hand, people say, no, if you as an elector think that it's better to go against it, you should be able to. The other side of the aisle is that you're not an individual voting, you're voting on behalf of people. So if you're voting on behalf of people, you should follow the popular vote of your state. So if the popular goes blue, you should go blue in solidarity, because you're not, a it's like you're an official, you're not a person. And I think that's a very interesting concept. So as a result, we have this kind of mesh between popular and electoral college. On a state level, the popular vote matters. The popular vote decides electoral college. On a countrywide level, the popular vote doesn't matter, but the electoral college does. The reason for this is if we had just one national vote, then it would literally just be a numbers game of technically 60% of the country is blue because a lot of the cities are set. So, okay, every election then would go blue. Unless we have this major swing in ideology. Electoral college makes it a little easier. It breaks up each state because some states are red states and some states are blue states. And so even if more people overall are blue, maybe more states go red. And then it gives like, you know, the rural communities a shot kind of at the presidency. And you'll notice that if you're part of the people that would be in the majority there, you're like, fuck that. The majority wants this, then that's what's gonna happen. But at the same time, I do think it's important to have some of that variance because I'd rather have everyone's views be shown. I don't want the majority because even if the minority is 35%, that's 35% of 350 million people. That's a lot of human beings. And so I do think it's important to have the electoral college in some way. And it makes sense. Electoral college, I think everyone gets two electors, I believe. And then like as a base. And then you also get, I, I think because it's what you get two senators and then the House of Representatives is based off a of population or whatever. So. Maybe it's area size? Whatever. I should know this stuff. It's my podcast. Um, But then you get that many more electors based on the size of your state. And so it kind of gives... it's, It's a better representational idea than a straight popular vote because that becomes very dicey quickly as the country gets bigger and the needs become more nuanced. But with an electorate, it kind of funnels some of that out, cuts the fat, if you will. And so I think for that reason, the Electoral College is important. What I don't like is the way it works. I think all or nothing... Takes away a lot of that all-or-nothing voting, which is the way 48 states go. Pretty much says that if you get in the for the entirety of the state, whoever gets the popular vote gets all of the electors. It's like it's called all or nothing. And so for a, gr- a great example is I'm in New York, so this matters to me. In New York, it doesn't matter how many areas of New York go red as long as the population majority goes blue, then all the electoral college votes go to blue. Which kind of makes sense because that means that most of New York State wants it to go blue, technically. But certain areas of the state have not had their needs met in an election in 60, since, I guess, the 80s, I think. And so as a result, it makes the average person in some of these non-swing states feel like their vote does not matter at all. And it completely makes them not care about voting. And so I know a lot of adults that just don't vote because they're like, yeah, I don't care. I'm, it doesn't matter if I vote. It doesn't matter what happens. There are two states, Nebraska and Maine, that do it differently. I think they do it in a really good way. It's called the district method or split vote method. And Nebraska and Maine, pretty much what happens is they break the state in, well, the two Senate votes that they get, like every state gets, automatically go to the popular winner. That's how that works. We automatically get two electors towards the popular, like how the other 48 states work. But each House representative vote goes towards the winner of the vote in their district. So however many electoral votes you have, however many representatives you have, Each of those votes are allotted to that representative district. So if in this representative district it goes red, then the Electoral College vote goes red. If in this one it goes blue, then the vote goes blue. And in that situation, I think it's a lot stronger because Nebraska and Maine have had this law in place for decades. Decades. And only two times ever has it actually mattered. In 2012, Nebraska went blue for Obama. In 2016, Maine went red for Trump. That's the only two times in their history that it's even mattered, because usually the districts all tend to agree in these two states. But if nationally all 50 states had that method, we would see fractals of red and blue across the country, and it would make everyone feel more like their vote matters, because even if the state overall goes blue because more people vote blue, if this county goes red or this county goes blue, they get something. They get, it's not like a wasted, it's not a, oh, since you weren't the majority, your votes get thrown away. It's, it's a a little win. And so, so it wouldn't change majorities, but it would give minorities reason to vote. It would give people that usually don't get their needs met reason to vote. And as a result, it would give the majorities a reason to vote as well, because the majority population would say, oh, if we don't vote, this other group could still take it. It takes away the comfort of not being in a swing state. It makes every state a swing state because if everyone votes, who knows what's going to happen. And this is one of my most politically, like uh, it's one of the things I believe in the most is Is this concept. And I'm probably butchering it. If you're poli I apologize, but I'm pretty sure that's 90% of how that works. And I think it should be adopted everywhere just because it would charge everybody up more and allow more people to have more of a voice. That's my two cents on the Electoral College, which is a huge concept right now. And before I get into, which I'm going to be getting into in about five minutes, before I get into the politicians that are running for president currently, before I get into the Trump v. Biden debate, which is going to be the middle chunk of this episode, I do want to take a second to talk about paper ballots, mail-in ballots, how all that stuff works. Really interesting topic, right? Let me tell you a little history for our younger, dear listeners out there. The year 2000, everyone's afraid of voter fraud, right? We have the election. It goes down to like a county in Florida. Closest election of all time. And people are like confused, upset, right? What if this ballot got lost? It feels like paper's not safe anymore. And with all the fraudulent claims, people were afraid. And so there was this huge, 2002, George W. Bush pushes out this like $4 billion overhaul into this Help America Vote Act. This is in 2002, halfway through his first term. And so they put money into modernizing voting. They had a bunch of really fancy computers with touchscreens. You can go vote. It prints out a receipt, lets you know what's up. And boom, just like that, paper seemed to be almost like it was a thing of the past. So many places turned towards this in the years to come. But what we didn't expect was cybersecurity risks. This was something that wasn't as thought about back in the early 2000s, where now we know it's easy to tamper. And America is not on the cutting edge of cybersecurity. So it's easy to have issues. And in 2016, there was a lot of Russian meddling, a lot of voter fraud. To what extent? People aren't sure. Government doesn't say. This media says this. This media says that. But there was tampering, and it wasn't safe. And so as a result now, everyone's turning back to paper. If you've been awake at all for the last, like, month, You've heard that they're trying to get paper ballots out to everyone, mailings out to everybody in coronavirus season so that everyone has a chance to vote. But this comes at the same time as we are defunding the United States Postal Services. (laughs) And so there's a bunch of stress right now on the postal service industry. There's a lot of money going in. I think the Senate just today cleared and said, hey, you guys got to use extreme measures to make sure this thing works. Like we don't want any issues with this because people are at the edge of their seat. We don't want major riots. We don't want these things to come from anything more than they have to. And so you have this tension right now about these ballots. And I think it's funny. I, I, I think it's funny because we kind of pushed so far one way to find that maybe it was too far. And now we're trying to find that medium again. I think paper is smart, tried and true. If you look like Britain and Ireland and stuff, they still do all paper, hand counted. And I think that's smart because if we hand count the votes... It's a lot harder on a mass scale to do stuff. It's easier individually, right? To change someone's thing or to, you know, fill out a second one and replace it. That's crazy, though. That's conspiracy. And it takes a lot of coordination to get that done because it's individuals with a pen and paper f- committing fraud, as opposed to I'm going to hack into this one computer and change 1,000 votes. It's a lot harder to pen and paper to 1,000 votes. You got to get the entire committee of this town in on it to do that as opposed to one person at night going in and and, and hacking, right? And so I think that paper is smart, at least for now until we can figure out cybersecurity. I think it's a good thing for us to fall back on, but I'm so curious how both sides, left and right, might claim fraud. I think it's going to happen either way. I think regardless of who wins, we're going to see it contested, and we're going to see it contested really hard up until inauguration. And so I don't expect to have a result from this election until the end of November at least. You know, or we're gonna we're gonna get like the first count, but they're gonna have to recount it, and and it's gonna be a a bunch of recounts, and it's gonna get pushed, and there's gonna be a bunch of claims about this and that, and you're gonna see stuff spring up that makes it seem fraudulent, and half of that stuff's probably gonna be true and accurate, the other half might be like fabricated, or you might see one side try to make it look like the other side was discrediting. Right? This is crazy. This seems like conspiracy. But then you wake up in the day and it's the headline and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, well, 2020, ain't it, folks? So you start to see some of these things. This is a a tough time to be living in politically. In the 60s, say, we knew about a lot less because there wasn't the internet. So it was easier for things to be suppressed. It was easier for you to live in ignorant bliss about how the world worked and how politics worked and how governments worked. But in today's day and age where there's whistleblowers left and right and you hear every headline and see every piece of news, it is so much harder to be confident, than it was when, you know, in the middle of the 20th century. And so I think that's something that's really interesting to think about and to keep in mind. This is stressful. It might seem like the world's unraveling, but partially it is. And partially it's just that we're not used to watching it unravel like this. It's new. And so keep your head on your shoulders and be okay. With that, let's get into some of the politics. We got two main candidates. We got Donald Trump. On the right, the sitting president has been for four years. We have Joseph Biden, former vice president, senator, head to head, trying to win the presidency at a time that seems more important than ever before. We've had four years of tumultuous situation, right? The 2016 election was this unprecedented moment where you had two objectively bad people. And I I won't go into details, but I can. These are people that have dark histories with shady deals and bad informants and things that seemed like they were breaking the law, personal lives that are a mess. Two people that both sides objectively didn't like. I didn't know too much. There were some people that were hardlining and things, but generally people in their own party were saying like, we don't love this. It became a lesser of two evils fight. That is what I heard so much. You know, Gotta vote for Hillary because she's at least she's not Trump or like Trump's an asshole. But have you seen Hillary? And it became this better than the alternative mentality, and I hated it. I hated it so much it scared the living shit out of me. Because once a party convinces you that to do that, they have convinced you that they are that their party is like the morally correct party, and if they give you a piece of shit, you should put them in office because that piece of shit is shinier than the one sitting across the aisle. And that is a horrible mentality to be in in politics. It's a horrible mentality of this is a bad person that's not very electable, but they're our only option. And I hear everyone saying that. And what that tells me is that the way we elect is poor. The the situation is poor where there's only two options and it gets to a point where most people don't even feel like they're being represented. And you're picking someone that's not going to represent you but better than the other one. That, to me, is time for some systematic change. And I have said before that I think the change we should make, at the very least to start, because this would be an easy change, even like in terms of getting it passed through um, the Supreme Court, is that we should have four people. We should have each party put up two folks. We can have, you know, I would say there should be a center-right, center-left party, and a radical-right, radical-left party. You can have, you know, the Republican Party put up say they call it you know, the moderate conservative party, and they have the libertarian party as more their farther party. And you might have, and, that might, and that's not even the correct words, but that's just my opinion. And you can have the you know, moderate, the democratic candidate, and you can have the you know, American Socialist Party candidate. And you can have, to start, both of those two candidates go under the right and the left, eventually having a four-party system. But I think having more than two options is huge. Because that means if like your party doesn't give you what you want, you can still choose someone that's on your side of the ideological aisle. Because right now it's like, oh, I don't like Biden, but the only other option is on the other side of the political spectrum for me. So I have to vote Biden. He's the only person in orbit of what I want. Or Trump is—and the, and I see this even more with Trump because Trump is a, a more— you know, politically hasn't done much because he's only been an officer four years of his ever. As a person, he's one of the most abrasive people in our country today. So you have this like so many people on the right, almost everyone on the right. That's not like a, a Trump supporter is saying, I don't like him, but I think that he's at least a conservative. Like it's, it's the side I agree with. And both sides are doing it. I think Trump's maybe a better example of that. But that's sad. Like people that say that, it it upsets me. It's unfortunate that that's the way you feel about your party. Like you have to do that. And the big question someone would say to me right now is like what's the other choice? What's my other option? Not vote? To which I say in a perfect world. The thing is no one's pushing this because the you know, people on both sides of the aisle at this point, most people are echoing what they hear from the media they like, the media they support. And the media that you support is most likely running its ideology based on who it wants you to vote for. And so if it's a Trump-driven media or a Biden-driven media, what of those people are going to say, hey, write in someone else? They're not, because they want you to vote for their candidate. So it then becomes, you know, you see the left saying, it's huge right now, the left is saying, if you're not voting for Biden, you're voting for Trump, which is unfair to say, if you don't vote, you're voting for Trump. If you vote for a third party, you're voting for Trump. I get the sentiment. It's kind of like that grassroots. We got to stand like together. We can fight the power right now, but we all have to stick together. But it is a dangerous sentiment because you're pretty much saying if you're not doing this, you're acting incorrectly. In reality, if you're voting for Joe Jorgensen it's, and you support Joe Jorgensen, you're not voting for Trump. You're voting for a third party. If Trump gets elected because enough people do that, that is have a problem with the way voting works. Don't put it on the individuals for voting for the candidate they like or not voting because they don't feel like they like any candidate. It's tough because there's this ideological warfare of like right versus wrong, but don't falsely equate those things. That's unfair. In my opinion, if you don't support either candidate, write in a person you support. And I, 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 and I get it. This is maybe not the election to do that because we have two powerhouses and no one knows who's going to win at all. But as a general concept, and I would say if we could get majority of the population in on this, I think it would be the move. If you could get 50 million people (laughs) to vote and write in someone else, you might see a winner. You might, oh, Biden won. But he won. And if you look at the popular vote with so little votes, it's just that only... 20,000 people voted for each of the main candidates and the rest of the people voted for someone else it would cause change more dramatically than anything else because you'd see oh 20 million people wrote someone in that's unprecedented and this is the you know this is the presidential election that has had the lowest votes for a major party in history those kind of headlines would force change it would force people to reconsider like who they're putting up it would force both parties to go against the establishment idea because clearly no one wants it But if we all settle for the all right candidate, it's letting them know they can keep doing that because all it takes is, okay. say Biden wins, then in four years, the conservative party has to put up anybody better than Biden and they'll vote for that person. And this is how we start to see politics degrade into not being representative governments, but instead being powerhouse cycles where I know I can get this candidate in. So we're going to push this guy because he's going to do great for us as a party and our people will vote for him because they're brainwashed. And so I do think it's very important. I'm starting to feel like I'm a conspiracy theorist talking in my room in the microphone about that, but I think it's important for us not to settle too much. Maybe for this election you can argue, whatever. But we need to start pushing for better people running. We need to start pushing for better candidates. The fact that no one likes Trump and no one likes Biden, and yet there are the people we're picked is sad. If you're on the left, you should be angry, The fact that you somehow got stuck with Biden. How does that work? How many people did you know that during election were going to vote Biden or during the primaries were saying, oh, yeah, like we want Biden? That he was not to most people that I see the popular idea for the candidate. And somehow that's what you got. And it makes me question that, right? The way Super Tuesday works, where they go to specific areas and based on how those areas vote, certain people drop out of the race. It's sad. Like, it's, that's sad that it, that's how that works. That it, it's like, it doesn't even, like, if you remember this year, it didn't even get through everyone. People just started dropping out after, like, the second day because they're like, yeah, Biden's winning. And then Biden is now the candidate. And it's like one of those, if you don't want to have career suicide, you're going to drop out and you're going to support him. And they do. And it happens every time someone's being elected like that. But it it is frustrating. And with that, I guess I'll get into a little bit on each candidate. So Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. You may know him as Joe Biden, workers man, vice president in 2008 alongside Barack Obama, famous guy if you haven't heard of him. And they say he served for Delaware as a senator for 36 years, was then vice president for eight years, was a solid vice president, regardless if you like what he's doing. or He did important work. He focused a lot on economic policy, foreign policy. He actually went to Syracuse University. What, what? New York, upstate. Motherfuckers. He was the first Catholic and the first Delaware member to serve as vice president, which I think is super cool. He's won his Senate seat so many times. He's been reelected a lot. He's had a lot of experience. And so as a result, he has had some very interesting views that have changed. People say that's the hardest thing about Biden. Biden is that he has had such a long history and politics have changed so much over his history that there are so many things that looking back, like now you're like, damn, he supported that? At the time, we're living in a different world. The Democratic Party looked different, which I think people forget about. Um, if you look at the Democratic Party, even in the 90s and 2000s, Bill Clinton was calling human beings illegal aliens. That was the words described. Al Gore was going to spend some of the surplus we got, we had from the 90s if he was elected, on keeping American values pure and keeping foreign mind mentalities and ideologies off of American soil, which sounds like a conservative party thing to say, but this is who we were dealing with in the 2000s. So even in the last 15 years, 20 years, you've seen the left change a lot. And so Biden, it's almost unfortunate. Some of the things I think are objectively not the best, but it's unfortunate You know, that's what happens when you're in politics, where Trump doesn't have that. He's been in politics for four years. And so he hasn't had as much time to like look back at what he was saying in the 90s about this this political thing, you know? And so it's a little more tough. But Biden has had a very interesting time over the years. He was when he was young, a lot of the things he did would seem almost now like conservative things to do. You know, he was opposed the forcing of busing to people in different racial communities, right? It was kind of a, a build that was promoting forced busing of all students together to kind of end segregation in terms of that regard. He voted against that. He was in favor of keeping the corporate climate of Delaware strong. He wanted to keep it a climate of a place where you want jobs. And that's not a bad thing. Supporting corporations in your state is good because it keeps jobs in your state. It keeps industry in your state. And that's more important than almost anything else. But we're in its place right now. People are saying, you know, fuck the corporate climate. Fuck having that be the main thing. People matter more than corporation. That's an interesting thing that he's shifted a little bit. He's not like anti-corporate America by any means. But he's definitely pulled back some of that sentiment over his career. A big thing he's changed is his stance on crime. Back in the day, he was big into like crime bills. He signed a bill that provided 100,000 more police officers onto the nation's streets, banning assault weapons, mandating tougher penalties for drug dealers, which is super contentious right now. This is something that Kamala Harris's running mate also has had issues with. It's coming out right now that they had a lot of hands in the drug war, hardline drug war, and the drug war is something that has aged very poorly. Since it didn't work, it's easy to look back and say, like, fuck that, I'm anti-drug war. I think that arresting people for possession of drugs doesn't make any sense. I think all drugs should be decriminalized. Now, if you're driving under the influence of drugs, if you're a major seller, right, you're, you're, you're making drugs and selling them without any sort of testing, right, that kind of thing, those people, I understand jail time. But if I have meth on me for my own personal use, I think that it's a very slippery slope to put me in jail because I haven't done anything to hurt anybody. <laughs> so why am I going to prison for having cocaine? I get it if I'm selling a cocaine to other people, because then I'm promoting the drug trade. I get it if I'm driving and I'm high on cocaine, because that's unsafe. But if I'm in my house and I have some cocaine for myself, why am I going to prison for that? And that's just a little opinion of Joe John's, if you're curious, dear listener. But those are things that have not aged very well. Something he did well, that a lot of people like, when he was vice president, he was in charge of this huge stimulus package. He was given an $800 billion almost economic stimulus package. That was his big thing as VP, was enacting that. He was trying to do a, 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 he did a task force for like the middle class, arms reduction treaties with Russia, advisory role with conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. So he was very hands-on in terms of foreign policy as vice president. And Pence has a lot of similar experience nowadays. Um, he's doing similar things. But That's a big point in Biden's favor is that he does not handle himself in foreign policy. He has a lot of relationships with people across the world. He's worked on things that are of that scale. And so I think that will translate well in his presidency if he was to have it. You might disagree with what he does or why he wants to do it, but I think he would do a strong job as a Democratic president. I think he would enact good change and he wouldn't just be sitting on his hands. We don't want no Jimmy Carters, not in 2020. Um, and one more thing I would say on Biden's past is that he has been known to, you could call it lie. <laughs> uh, one could say lie. He withdrew in 1987 from his presidential bid because he was caught using JFK speeches, using, um, what's the one guy's name? Neil Kinnock. Neil Kinnock was a British politician. He was using aspects of his life story, exaggerating his academic credentials. He talked about how his like, father was a coal miner, which isn't true. These are, again, ex- lifted from Neil Kinnock's life and using them to try to gain favor. And so that's a, that was a huge thing that like was big news back in the day that I don't know how many people know about that, but it's something that I just recently learned. And I think some of that stuff is a little sketchy, the things we do for politics. And this is my main struggle with Joe Biden is that he is a very establishment democrat. I think under him you'd have a lot of establishment left things done, which if you like that, please go vote for him. It is the thing I'm most afraid of. I'm pro- I'm left, right? I would say that if I had to pick where I'm at, I'm more on the progressive end with almost every issue in some capacity. Some things I'm far left, some things I'm more moderate, there are things that I'm more conservative on, but generally I am Pro left. But the one thing I'm against on both sides, the, the thing that puts me as, a, as an independent is that I don't like the establishment. I think that the hardline authoritarian right and authoritarian left that exist, and, you, and, you, and you'll see who those people are, the people that are looking to maintain the status quo of their party, people that are pulling the strings. A lot of times it's the baby boomers in office. Don't do things for the people. You can watch and see as Mitch McConnell's and Nancy Pelosi's do things that are clearly power grabs, clearly to maintain power, and to mess with the other side of the aisle. Specifically, make the job harder. And it's this, like, you started it, who did it first, who's worse thing. But I do not support it in any regard. It's why in 2016 I like Trump. I wasn't a Trump supporter. I couldn't vote. But I said in 2016, if he becomes president, I'm excited just because at least it'll be... Chaotic. It'll be something different. Who knows? And it did. His presidency, I think, pushed radicalism in this country. Like it really brought. It made the left understand how upset they were with the way things can be. It made the right realize that the chaotic energy got more done. It made everyone realize, like, regardless if you like the direction we're going in, it's at least something different. And I guess this is how we're gonna start. This is how I'm gonna get into Trump. Donald Trump ran. He has less of a political background, so it's kind of hard for me to really talk about his past. But I can talk about his presidency. Um, He has pursued tax cuts. Biggest thing he's done is deregulate. Like The biggest thing he's been trying, he's been cutting. He cut the environmental agencies, FDA. He's been doing cuts across the board to try to make as little regulation as possible. The idea is that it will make businesses have more freedom, to make more money, to push us economically in the right direction. We've had a very good economy under Trump. Some people completely relate that to him. Some people say he had nothing to do with it, that we were just in a boom cycle. It's what was supposed to happen anyways. Um, It's kind of a difficult thing to track, especially from the outside looking in. I don't know. But he has deregulated, which has, in some ways, it's been a good thing because it's allowed people to do more. It's It's helped big businesses a lot. Small businesses, sometimes not. They can't compete anymore because regulations have kind of a bell curve, where if you're a big enough company, it's really nice because you have so many things you can just cut. But if you're a small business, you can't cut those same things because you don't work on that level. And so it has been in some ways bad for small businesses. Other small businesses have benefited. Um, But overall, it's been good for our economy to deregulate. The negative part is things like environmental controls have been in the gutter. And things that are not corporately motivated... Are failing and having more issues due to the fact that things are deregulated. He is pro police, he's, he's anti drug. He's, his big thing was immigration. This is like his main thing is he's like, we need to fix immigration, which I think is fair to a point. I think we need to, I think immigration's great. I would like having a mixture of people. I think having diversity is huge. And in America, we're so diverse that I don't think it's a problem. To his point, I think illegal immigration is a problem only because it's hard to track. It's not safe. There's so much death that happens at the border, horrible conditions that happen at the border. Some of that's on the side of people trying to come in. Some of that's on the side of like the fact that there are people that work on our border as American soldiers and things that kind of have free reign because these, these are not American nationals. And so there's a lot of like gray area when it comes to our border. So I do think we should make it very clear. I think it should be very hard to get in here illegally. I think it should be relatively easy to get in here. I think especially asylum is important. At the same time, though, I don't think we should flood the same areas. You know, you shouldn't have half of a population be people that have come here for asylum. Because that's just like, that's not... I guess if a community decides together they want to do that, I think it's important. But I think our country is so big... We should put more money into relocating families from any country. This isn't about anyone in particular. But if you're coming from any country, it shouldn't just be like, oh, we get most of our immigrants come on to our borders. So most of our immigrants are living in places like New York and L.A. and in Texas and in, uh, in the major cities of influx. There is a benefit to some of it. But at the same time, there are so many states in our union, especially in the middle of the country that have such small populations of human beings that we can afford to put a lot of people there. That's the biggest argument against opening our borders more, is that like a lot of these border towns are busting at the seams and they don't have space to take in a million people. But Wyoming has space to take in a million people. So I think that's part of it, is that we should legitimize the system more and not make it so kind of strange and outdated. So I, I think that it's important to have a strong border, but it's important to let a lot of people in. I think it's big. I think it's important... People want to come in here and make a better life, they can. And that's leading me into my biggest issue with Trump. The worst thing about Trump objectively, and no one can tell me I'm wrong, because no one would think I'm wrong, is that he can be an asshole. You might like that he's an asshole, but he's an asshole. (laughs) Trump speaks poorly about people, about topics. He doesn't care. He doesn't cut corners. He simply has his opinions, shares them, and does not care how that makes anyone feel. Which in 2020 is equally refreshing and frustrating because some of his opinions, a lot of his opinions to some people, are fucked, are wrong, they're traditional, they're backwards, they're not the future of this country. And so seeing our figurehead make claims like almost on behalf of the people is very polarizing. You either love him for that because he's saying what you've always wanted said, man, or you hate him for that because He's saying stuff that I don't want to hear, and it sounds like America's saying it. And so it's this horrible dichotomy of a president like him is a linchpin. And if he was a better communicator, he could probably have sowed so much benefit in this country. But the way he is, he ran on making fun of the other people on the stage. He ran on trying to depower the media and convince everyone not to listen to them. He ran on these things that are now coming back to bite him. Because since he said to the media, like, fuck you... The media said, fuck you back. And so as a result, you have this back and forth tussle between those parties that makes it impossible to know what's actually happening. You have the president versus the media. That's bad. You want people to work together. And so he's not a person that's going to build that. He is not a builder in terms of making human beings work together. And so... That is why I don't like him. That is, I think, the biggest scare factor to think about in terms of Trump. With Biden, it's he's wishy-washy. He tends to go with what the party says. I think both Trump and Biden have changed their minds on a lot of things. I know a number. Trump, in his campaign, made 141 distinct shifts on 23 major issues. That comes from NBC News count, which is even if you don't like NBC this is a fact checked there's so many fact checking organizations that have come out during the campaign and said that he's made more false statements and lies compared to any candidate ever even since then in office you could like Trump but he does not speak with objectivity ever he speaks subjectively he pumps people up he's one of the best orators i've ever seen in terms of he does get the people he wants to like him to like him but he's not someone you can really trust biden has the same issue he, he doesn't lie in terms of his speeches, but his positions over the years changed frequently, too frequently. And things that he backed very hard, he thinks are horrible now. And to a point, you want that. You want to show that candidates can grow and change. When it comes to some of the risky stuff like lying about your father's, where you come from as a kid, right? Where your father worked when you were younger. Lying about the, how you've been elected. Lying about some of your life facts to get elected is equally scary things. He hasn't done that in a while. But both, peop- both of those people have a history and issues with getting what they want by lying. It's a politician thing, but it's still scary. The fact that we can't get away from it's even scarier. I think when it comes to the future, Trump is going to focus on financial reform still. His next four years would be, I think, unprecedented in terms of his push for financial reform. If you like Trump and you're voting for Trump, you're going to see deregulation more. You're going to see corporate America pushed more you want Biden, you're going to see a lot of social reform pushed. You're going to see more regulations on businesses, and you're going to see more money put into people, put into different programs. And I think that's the the left likes programs. The left uses programs to fix problems. They make this act and this bill and this group that are given money to fix problems. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. So you're going to see programs made. You're going to see Disenfranchised groups get money, some of that might be good, some of that might be bad. I think these groups do need money, right? Our education needs reform, our housing needs reform. But there's a way to do it. So that's what you're gonna see from Biden. You're gonna see a lot, you're gonna hopefully see a lot of that reform. Trump and the right tends to have more of the concept of we're gonna push economics and we're gonna use hopefully a surplus like that to force change. We're gonna pump the economy. To make everyone's quality of life better. And that's kind of the difference between the two parties. And you're with both candidates, you're gonna get that, regardless, again, if you like it or not. You're gonna get that. It might work, it might not, but that's what you're gonna be seeing. I think my biggest fear for each candidate is that I think under Biden, I think under Biden it's gonna be better foreign policy-wise, because so many people hate Trump. Like so many countries hate Trump. So many governments and heads of state think him being in office is a mockery to the concept of world government. And so I think under Biden, you're going to see that be better. You might not like those countries. So if you don't like those countries, then screw it. If you want isolationist America, then you don't care about that. But I do think if you, want, if you like globalism, you're going to see that become better under Biden. Both Biden and Trump seem to understand the problems with China. You, we know Trump can take a hard line on China, which is one of the things I like about him. I don't like much about him. I like his stance on China. I think it's effective. Um, And it doesn't directly hurt individuals in China. I mean, some of the results have been negative, but like it is pushing the government of China and it's working to a point. I think with Biden, you'll see similarly. He might, maybe not, but from what he's said, he's going to try to be equally hard on China. I think they agree there more than anything else. I think what I like about Biden is that He's going to voice, right now, again, it's two groups with opposite views. And so whoever's in power, their constituents are going to get all their needs met, and the other side is going to get bodied. So for the last four years, we've seen the left just not get any of their needs met. Nothing they've wanted has happened. It's been a tough four years if you're on the left. Farther you are, the harder it is. I think the benefit to Biden is that it would give, you know, Trump is such a tough cookie that it's four years of aggressive change for the right. So if you get Biden, you're going to see four years of change back toward the left. Maybe it'll center us. Maybe it'll just make the other side feel that burn and like everyone's going to still be equally mad. But I do think at the end of the day, the biggest reason I like Biden is because I don't know if our country can take four more years of Trump. Like him or not, he makes everyone angry. He makes everyone talk. And so you might like that. I don't know if our country can handle it with things like coronavirus and race riots and all these different things happening. I don't know if we can handle four more years of Trump in office. That's why I don't like Trump. And so at this point, I'm going to get into kind of the end of the show. We're approaching an hour. And so just to kind of simplify what I'm saying a bit in terms of some of these candidates, I just want to, like, I guess that's all I want to say for the candidates. We know what we're getting. You're probably voting one way no matter what. I didn't expect to change any minds, but I want people to know what to expect, what they're voting for. Truly, not the person, but the policies. When it comes to this election, it's a scary time. We're all horrified. The reason is because our country's bursting at the seams. We are seeing so many different things of points of influx happen at the same time, and it's just rubbing everybody in the wrong direction. There's seemingly so many problems, and there's seemingly no way to fix those problems. We have record numbers of anti-government sentiment, anti-establishment sentiment. 85% of our country on both sides, this is both sides of the aisle, Don't trust the government and don't think they're doing what's best for us. This is not even recent. This is over the years, the last six, seven years. If you look at, there's Gallup polls that have been going since 1980 that that you can see that in almost all areas, whether it's economic, whether it's social, whatever, in almost all areas across the board, the don't have faith column is checked and the don't trust and don't like and disagree column is higher than ever before anywhere across the board for left and for right in all age groups. Nobody's happy right now. And we're all just like, everyone's scared. And they're scared that if we don't get my way, it's going to become over the tipping point. And I think it, it might. Like, we might be fine. It might just be a point of contention as an older generational set of ideas kind of is fading and a newer generation of ideas is coming in. You have those like inflection points that are tough. It might just be that. At the same time though, we could truly see major change in this country. We could totally see a civil war. We could see revolutionary activity. We could see post-American world. Like if I've said this, the only reason that like we're still good with the amount of debt we have and with and I don't even get to debt today, but the amount of debt we have and the amount of fear we have and the amount of issues we have. The only reason we're OK is because for the last 100 years, we've been pretty much at the cutting edge of every major tech advance, like when it comes to cars and the internet and all these things that mattered. We were there to reap the monetary fiscal reward, the social reward of it. And so we're cool. But in the next 50 years, we're going to see things like robotic tech and cybersecurity and interconnectivity take off. And if we miss one of those things, say someone like China China, gets that right, if some other country is better at innovating than we are because our schools education's dipping and things, if we see someone that's a better innovator that takes that charge, we might see a post american world where we're not on top, and if we're not on top, I think we're going to see ourselves turn into a nation with a lot more problems if we 're not on the cutting edge because I think the only reason it's okay is we all say, well, at least we're in America, <laughs> which is better off than a lot of places, but if we start to see more of those cracks show and start to lose some of the momentum, our debt's going to catch up to us. Our social problem is going to overwhelm us. And we're going to see revolutionary activity happening. And we're going to see major change. Major change is coming in the 2020s. It is for sure. The question is, are we going to be on the end of that that hurts us? Or are we going to be on the end of that that works together? And right now we're heading towards hurting each other, not working together. And so we need positive change. We need positive people who are willing to listen to each other and communicate and work against the systems that are actually against them. If you're a Democrat, a single Republican is not your enemy. If you're a Republican, a single Democrat is not your enemy. You're two people with different opinions, but you're not opposed humans. You're both people living in the same town, in the same city, in the same country, or whatever. And so as much as you might not like each other's views, you're on the same team. The team of, please God, we need to keep this country together and keep the nation together. Or if we're going to split the nation into 50 different nations, which might be even better at this point, again, your neighbors, you work with together, you you are under the same economy, under the same flag, under the same monetary system. Those issues are not to have with each other. They're issues to have with the establishment that is not serving us. And so I think that's huge. If you don't like the way things are, it's not because there's someone voting against you somewhere. It's because the way the system works isn't the way you want it to work. And I think that's The single most important thing i want to leave people with today. (laughs) It's scary. Your vote doesn't seem to matter because if you're in the wrong area of the country, it doesn't matter what you do. Everyone's going to, there's a tide against you. So we need to fix it. You know, write your senators, no, write your representatives, write your government, post online, go to marches, whatever you need to do. But talk about it. Talk about change. Talk about having more candidates, more options. Talk about having change in how the system of voting works if you don't want like the way it is. Talk about gerrymandering, which is how we split each district and how screwy it is sometimes, where it's the gerrymandering is scary. And look it up. It's scary. It's clearly politicians on both sides drawing lines so that they can get reelected so that the Democrats always win here and the Republicans always win there and there's never any option. And again, it's taking the power from the voters so that the power systems can maintain that power. So look into some of those things and don't trust what you're seeing. Don't trust one source of media. Don't trust one single politician. Don't trust one idea. Because if you believe in a single idea and think all the other ideas that are opposed to it are wrong, you're probably wrong. You're probably too far into one side of the equation to clearly understand the negative impacts it has on others. There are human rights issues that that does not apply to, but for most social issues, Fiscal issues, economic issues. It's shades of gray. And you need to respect that people don't always have to agree with you. Please vote tomorrow. God damn it, if you haven't already voted. I don't know who's going to win. I really don't. I can see Biden winning. I can see Trump winning. I think it depends on who actually has the ball to go out and vote. I think it depends on who actually cares enough to go out and do it more. It seems that it's kind of split. Some people dislike the establishment enough to go for Trump again. Some people dislike Trump enough to go for the establishment again. No one seems to be happy, but everyone seems to be tolerant of one over the other. Usually it's, I don't like Biden's policy, but it's better than Trump's personality. Or it's, I don't like Trump's personality, but it's better than Biden's policy. And that seems to be the general consensus. So go vote. Vote for a candidate if you think they're going to make our country better. If you don't, please don't vote for them. If you don't think they're going to make our country better, don't vote for them. Regardless of what that means, if it means not voting, if it means writing someone in, if it means going third party, whatever, just don't emptily vote. Vote, if you're going to vote, know what you're voting for, know what they're going to do and support it. But don't fake yourself. And go vote anyways because there's other positions. You're voting for other you're voting for representatives, you're voting for in like local bills. Like I voted uh, in my town for this local bill that's going to be great for the community if it passes. Like Vote, no matter what, even if you're afraid about the presidential part, go vote. But don't just listen, think. Please, God, think. If you like the show, you can find me at Instagram at jonathan sherburn, my website jonathansherburn.com. I'm stressed, everybody. This is I, this is. I'm not ending this happy. I'm ending this. I'm gonna go t- take a run or have a drink or something. Damn it. That's why this show is called Nightcap. It's because we can talk about things that stress us out and then get drunk after and pretend that things are okay. And with that, I will say, I love you. Everybody listening, thank you so much for listening. Please keep tuning in. Please keep texting me, talking to me, letting me know if you like or dislike my content. I hope this wasn't too rambly. Hope there was at least some good information in here. And I will see you next week on Monday, the Nightcap Podcast. Thank you. Oh beautiful, it's just our luck America's in its grave Coronavirus, voter fraud We are all in such pain America, what's wrong with you? Are we communists or fascist pigs? Make up your mind, we don't have time, we're all on a sinking ship.